Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel from Anshay Emmett Synagogue and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Pinchas, Standing for Something, Rosa Parks and the Daughters of Zalofkad. A while back, I was in Montgomery, Alabama, and I visited the Rosa Parks Museum. I was just there last week. Okay, well. I had never um, been to that museum before. I'd been to Montgomery several times and had missed the Rosa Parks Museum, so I was really glad to see it. I imagine that you got on that bus and sat down. They have an actual bus in the museum, and you kind of sit in a seat, and you really can, and there's a film that's in, it's really well done. But I think just being on a bus and kind of thinking about what it would, must have been like for her to stand up and say, no, I'm not, I'm not giving my seat to a white person. It was really striking. I don't know how you felt about it, but I was really moved by that. Yeah. And of course, you know, I've been researching this for years now. So I was struck by some of the messaging that goes on there, because one of the ways we like to tell the story is that here's this tired seamstress um, who's just been working all day and she gets on the bus to go home and she doesn't want to get up in part because she's just, she's tired physically, but she's also tired of the, the degradation that comes with riding the buses in Montgomery for black people. But we make it sound like it's just an ordinary day's event that a tired worker doesn't want to get up with the bus, but that's not exactly uh, what really happened. So, so the idea that it just happened to happen that way that day, because she just had enough, it wasn't exactly what happened, even though that's kind of a way that it's portrayed there. Yeah, in fact, um, Rosa Parks is one of many people who for years had been complaining and petitioning the city to do something about the buses. And teams of activists, mostly led by women, had been discussing whether a boycott would help. And it wasn't until, uh, and, and there had been a couple of women and men arrested for refusing to give up their seats before Rosa Parks. But the city had not felt like the time, the black citizens of Montgomery had not felt like the time had really come to launch a boycott. So Rosa Parks was not necessarily, um, you know, it was not inevitable. Like she could have gone to jail and nothing could have happened. And I think it's interesting to think about why all of a sudden the community decided to respond and why you know, that struck a chord with the rest of the nation the way it did. Why do you think? I think in part it's because the city was prepared, that there was this building sense of anger, that the, the, the black citizens weren't going to take it anymore. And they were ready. You know, they had been preparing for a protest so and waiting for the right person to get arrested. Uh, the, you know, the, the last w woman who got arrested, was they felt like was too young and that she couldn't handle the pressure. And um, she was a teenager and, and um, they just didn't feel like it was right. But because the community had already been been thinking about this for a long time when Rosa Parks got arrested. And I think in part she got arrested intentionally knowing that she would give the city um, and give the community an opportunity to rally around her. She was not naive at, in the least. You know, she was an activist with the NAACP. She'd recently attended a big community meeting about the murder of Emmett Till in Mississippi. She was serious business and she was ready to start something big. And then, you know, you also had um, other preachers and other activists ready to join in and see what would happen, including Martin Luther King Jr., of course. So in a way, this was the inverse of the story that we tell. She was actually attaching herself to a much larger idea, right? It wasn't about her on a particular day. It was about something much bigger. 
Yeah, and it wasn't even just about the integration of the buses in Montgomery. It was about equality and justice and, and fairness and forcing the nation to live up to its stated ideals of equality. So all of that was baked in to what she was doing, and she knew it completely. In fact, that day had lunch with the lawyer who would end up representing her in court and challenging the constitutionality of segregated buses. In a sense, that's what gave her act the power, that it wasn't about her, because we can kind of brush her aside. You say, okay, okay, she was a tired lady. We'll give her, you know, let's just let it go. But in this particular case, it was really much something much bigger than that. That's right. She knew she had the whole community behind her. That, that's a story, by the way, that I may speak for myself, that you brought and helped people understand. And I think it's, a, I think it's such an important um, gift that you've given people to really give a, a, the honest and true perspective and not the sanitized version that we often get. You know, there's a story in, the, in this week's portion of Pinchas, which has a similar ring to it. The people are in the desert. The daughters of someone by the name of Slovchad, their names are Machla, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza, they come forward and they say to Moses, our father's dead. We have no brothers. And so we don't want our father's name to be lost by giving the land, which really rightfully is ours, to go to the, um, go to the public because there's no male owners. And Moses doesn't brush them aside. Moses takes this matter to God. And God says that they're right. God says, as the plea of Slovchad's daughters is just. You should give them a heredity holding among their father's kinsmen, transfer their father's share to them. This is really kind of a landmark in Jewish law, in the history of that world. The women are being allowed to be property owners. And you could argue and say, well, this is one case, but they're not making it about them. They focus on the fact that it was their father, the larger issue of their father's memory that they were really fighting for, that his descendants should carry on his name through the land. And so I see some similarity there. And in the same way that Rosa Parks kind of opens up the floodgates in a way to a, a larger conversation about racial equality. So too, you have this idea of the rights of Jewish women being um, championed, if you will, by the daughters of Slovchat. And I wonder what you think of that. Yeah, I think it's, it's always interesting when we see cases of people petitioning for something for themselves um, or for, you know, a sense of righting or wrong. And, you know, there's this challenge because it feels sometimes like it's personal, like I've been wronged, but, um, you know, I have a friend who's a personal injury attorney and, and they get a bad rap sometimes, right? Because, you know, they, it, they're, they're called ambulance chasers, but, mm -hmm. but so many of the cases that he tells me about, and maybe it's just cause I'm his friend, but it seems to me that he's on, he, he's fighting for justice on a much larger scale. He's fighting for people who don't have a voice and he's fighting for issues to make sure it doesn't happen again. And sometimes every once in a while, you know, he's fighting for something that changes the law or changes uh, the outcome for, for many, many people. And that's what, you know, we see that in, in, 
in many pieces of litigation, right? Um, lawsuits that end up rising to the Supreme Court and changing our nation's laws. You know, that's how the individual seeking justice can sometimes change the world and correct um, something that's affecting many, many people beyond their own circle. And that's what Rosa Parks did too. And it sounds like that's what you're describing in this week's portion. There's no question about that. And what I want to point out is that what societies like to do is they like to reduce the issues and say, oh, it's just about them, or it's just one particular case, rather than looking at something more endemic to the larger society. So in Rosa Parks' case, right, you go to a museum, you think, oh, there's this tired lady who's been, you know, working on her fingers to the bone, quite literally. She just wants a seat on the bus. And gosh, look what happened. It, it became something larger. No, she was actually really invested in something larger. The Benot Slavcha, the daughters of Slavcha, were invested in something larger. And you can say, well, this is just this one particular case, but in general, let's just keep things the way they are. No. Those kinds of courageous acts open our eyes to something, you know, even more important. And so, too, with your friend who is a personal injury lawyer, it's the same issue. This person got involved with justice to try to help people, and we shouldn't denigrate it by saying, oh, well, it's just an ambulance chaser. We have to see the bigger picture and see that society is really being called to change, to think, and to evolve in a very powerful way. Yeah, one thing that's interesting to me in the case of Rosa Parks is that, it, it, you know, it's the media that decided to frame the story as, you know, a mild-mannered seamstress who's tired, as opposed to describing her as a radical freedom fighter who had a long history of experience uh, with the NAACP and local activism. Why did they prefer that story? And were they doing us a favor in the long run? Because... Would the Montgomery bus boycott have attracted as much media attention? Would it have forced, you know, white people in the North to reconsider, um, to look for the first time in many cases at what was happening in the South if it hadn't been portrayed that way? If, if she'd been portrayed as a radical activist, would that have hurt the cause? You mentioned Dr. King, but I don't know that Dr. King was on the forefront of this. No, that's another good example of how, you know, history is, is often um, told in, in ways that are convenient, but not necessarily true. He was not involved in the early planning for the protest. And he was really called in at the last minute to give a speech because others were afraid to do it or community leaders were concerned that not everybody would get on board if E.D. Nixon gave the opening speech. So King was new in town and they thought he wouldn't be too offensive um, to some of the other groups, but they also just thought that he was, a, he was young and he was a, a dynamic speaker. And again, it's kind of about the media. Like he'd probably be good at attracting attention for this cause um, in much the same way that people thought Rosa Parks would be good for attracting attention to the cause better than Claudette Colvin, who'd been you know, arrested a few months earlier and um, felt like was, was immature and not ready for the, for the pressure. So I'm just struck by how much of it is about framing and marketing and storytelling. It's not enough to do it. It's, it's also about how you tell the story, you know, how you frame the lessons that, that you want people to take away. Well, I, I guess I would add one other idea because you touched on it and I don't want to let it go. We tend to tell the stories we want to hear. And I'm going to use a term that uh, I don't want people to take in a way that feels racist, but I use it in a pointed way that 
there were lots of lots of white people who would look at Rosa Parks as being one of these uppity black people, right? Yeah. Like, how dare they? And, you know, there are probably plenty of Israelite men in the time of the Benot Lofchad who would say, oh, these uppity women, and we kind of put them in their places. And so we tell that story. And so unless we are willing to actually acknowledge the, the, the things that they're actually fighting for, change doesn't take place. You know, it's very nice that God jumps in to the fray here and says, this is what we will do. But that doesn't normally happen. God leaves that to us. We have to be the ones to see the bigger picture and to stand behind those who are willing to take the risks to make society better. And Jewish law, by the way, is not written in stone, pun intended. Jewish law is something that's open to evolving as our views change, as our situation changes. And the Benot Slavchad is a great example of that as well. You can't wait for the next person to, to raise their voice or for the next person to you know, refuse to give up their seat on the bus. Um, as Dr. King said at the time, it's always right for doing what's right. I love that. What a great place to end. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Rabbi. <laughs>